The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in November 2007. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. And today we welcome the Artistic Director of Lincoln Center Theatre, Andre Bishop. Hi, Andre. Hello. Let me just go through some of the, the credits for yourself and also for Lincoln Center Theater. Uh, currently, Cymbeline, the Shakespeare show, is running at uh, the Vivian Beaumont Theater. Uh, you, in the past, have been at Playwrights Horizons as artistic director for 10 years, as its literary manager for six. While you were there, three Pulitzer Prizes for drama, The Heidi Chronicles, Driving Miss Daisy, and Sunday in the Park with George. At Lincoln Center Theater, some recent productions include Wendy Wasserstein's Her Sister's Rosenzweig, An American Daughter, The Third, Tom Stoppard's Hapgood, Arcadia, The Invention of Love, and of course, the recent uh, The Coast of Utopia. Tony Awards during your stewardship at Lincoln Center Theater included The Coast of Utopia, Awaken Sing, Henry IV, Contact, A Delicate Balance, The Heiress, Carousel, and at uh, Playwrights, The Heidi Chronicles. Your particular interest has been in new playwrights, new development, including William Finn's A New Brain, Michael John Lacuse's Marie Christine, Jason Robert Brown in the Alfred Urey's Parade, a Contact with Susan Stroman and John Weidman, and The Light in the Piazza, Craig Lucas and Adam Gettle. We'll get to all that and more, but we'll start off with the current production at the Vivian Beaumont, Cymbeline, uh, one of the last of the Shakespeare shows. Tell us a little bit about Cymbeline and why you chose to, to produce that this season. Everybody always asks me that question. Why did you choose to produce Cymbeline? Uh, why does one choose to produce anything? I, I think it's a wonderful play and a misunderstood play. It was a very late play of his, and they call it, for reasons that no one really knows, a romance. There is romance in it. It's one of these plays that perhaps as one gets older, one is interested in the work of artists late in their lives, and this play was really late in Shakespeare's life. Um, he what he does in it, which is something that a lot of artists do, they, he goes back to themes of earlier plays. And in Cymbeline, which is the story of a of a king who's married to a wicked woman who hates him and hates her daughter, his daughter Imogen, who is in love with somebody, and a villainous person comes and tries to destroy that love. And the king of Britain is warring with the king of the emperor of Rome. Every single Shakespearean sort of plot is in Cymbeline. A girl dressed as a boy, uh, poisoning, waking up from poison and finding someone different lying beside you, uh, a certain amount of comedy, princes who are disguised as mountain boys, everything that's in virtually every Shakespeare play is in this play. With this difference, which is that in the last act, which is this famous, famous act that that I, I think uh, is of great redemptive power, which is that Shakespeare does something he's never done before, which is that everyone is forgiven. The warring nations make peace. Uh, even the villain repents and confesses and is forgiven. Uh, the lovers are reunited, and harmony reigns uh, in the world of the play. And I think that that kind of ending is only something that an older writer, a writer who's lived a while and has some wisdom, could have written. And I think the play speaks to us now. All of these late Shakespeare plays, Winter's Tale being one other, and uh, Pericles, these kind of slightly chilly, wintry tales, if you want to call it, seem to be very much in fashion now, which was not the case 50 years ago. Cymbeline is rarely done, though more often now than, than used to be. 
Uh, it's just a wonderful play. And what's been interesting, we're about halfway through our preview period, is that audiences are absolutely mesmerized by the mechanics of the story. Who does what to who? Who shows up where and how? Uh, and then in the last act, where all is revealed to the characters on stage, all that is revealed is what we in the audience know. Uh, it's just delightful. I mean, it's typical of Bernard Shaw, who didn't really like Shakespeare very much, that he loved Cymbeline except for the last act, which he then proceeded to rewrite. And I've had a number of letters from people saying, why don't you do the last act as written by Shaw and not by Shakespeare? <laughs> but the Shakespeare version is infinitely better. In fact, the Shakespeare version is the whole reason for doing the play. And a wonderful cast headed by Martha Plimpton as Imogen, the, the daughter, with uh, Michael Cerveris as her husband, whom she's married in secret. It's, it's not really known. John Cullum is as the king, and uh, Felicia Rashad as the uh, the stepmother. Terrific cast. How did you select who to put in the cast? How, how, how did you cast the show? It's always a, it's always a, a difficulty uh-huh. casting a play by Shakespeare because you not only have to look for obviously good actors and talented actors. But you have to find actors who know how to deliver and speak the verse. It's just absolutely idiotic to attempt it if you don't. And in the case of this production directed by Mark Lamus, who's a great, great Shakespearean director uh, and knows his Shakespeare backwards and forwards and has, in fact, directed Cymbeline twice before, not in New York, but in Hartford where he was the artistic director, um, he very much was interested in people who could speak the verse as well as being obviously whatever the word is. I hate the word right for the part, but that certainly is one of one of the things. And we, you know, my, Wendy Wasserstein always had this theory that plays somehow have lives of their own and that somehow the life of a play, the motor of a play that gives the play life sort of comes from the play as much as from external forces. And she also believed that actors, the right actors, have a way of finding the right play and you know when you cast a play you you audition people you offer roles you get turned down by actors who don't like the role or don't want to be in the play or want to do movies at that particular time but I've always found by and large that somehow there's a direct connection to the pl- from the play to who is in it because it's a personal choice I mean who wants to play this kind of part who wants to be in this kind of play um, so that I think casts are sometimes more self-selecting than we we think. Uh, the greatest example I can give of that was when I was at Playwrights Horizons and we were doing Driving Miss Daisy by a then unknown Alfred Urey. Uh, he'd written musicals but never written a play. And it was, well, as probably half the world knows, the story of this crotchety old southern lady and a, a black chauffeur and, and their friendship over many years. And... It was upstairs at Playwrights Horizons, which was not as big, I suppose, as the downstairs theater, and Playwrights Horizons wasn't that well-known, but it was pretty well-known. We couldn't find anyone to be in the play. Nobody wanted to do it. Many black actors, African-American actors, didn't want to play a chauffeur, and a lot of very capable women, character women, didn't want to play an old lady from the South who was prejudiced. and finally, we ended up with two people who were the best it ever was, mainly Dana Ivy, who was actually from the South, and Morgan Freeman. And Dana 
I didn't want her to be in it because I thought she was, at that point, she was in her early 40s, and I thought in a small 70-seat house, she would be too young looking, no matter how much makeup, it would look fake. And Morgan saw a casting notice, this was before he was that well-known, at Actors' Equity, and begged us for an audition and begged to be in the play, and no one else would do it. I mean, Nancy Marchand, for example, the late Nancy Marchand, who was great, had done the reading of the play, and she didn't want to do it. She said she was too tall. Uh, Franny uh, Sternhagen, who then took over from Dana, turned the play down because she felt she was, I don't know what, she was too young or something. So we ended up with the only two actors who wanted to do it that we knew who actually were the two best actors you could possibly. There have never been a meaner, more vinegary, and therefore more excellent Miss Daisy than Dana Ivey. And all the Miss Daisies that have been cast in the play, and there was never a better uh, uh, chauffeur than than Morgan, because he was tough. It wasn't sentimental. In talking about how Cymbeline came to be on the stage of the Beaumont, and for our listeners that aren't familiar with Lincoln Center Theater, we should explain that you have the Vivian Beaumont Theater, which is some thousand seats, and the Mitzi Newhouse Theater, which is about 300 seats, the larger theater being a Broadway house, the smaller theater considered an off-Broadway house. I look at what you've put on those stages just last year in this. Tom Stoppard, Shakespeare, a new musical by Flaherty and Aarons, a classic musical of Rodgers and Hammerstein upcoming, and a new Paul Rudnick play upcoming as well. How do you choose a season? Because that's awfully eclectic. What do you look for? It's a tricky question that I'm often asked well, not often, but the few times anyone ever asked me anything, I'm asked this question. And I'm very nervous about actually answering it because I don't totally know why. I've, I think I believe, and I've been lucky enough in the two theaters I've worked for, and I really mean lucky, to have never had to think about things like what the audience will like or will it sell tickets. You know, we had a subscription base at Playwrights Horizons and we have a large membership base at Lincoln Center Theater. And I've been allowed to do what I think is what a producer does, which is simply the intelligent exercise of one's own taste. I left Playwrights Horizons in 1991 because I, even though I loved it beyond, I think I'll ever love anything. uh, It was limiting purposely to new American plays only. And I'd been there for many years. And I knew that I wanted to do more than just do new plays. There was a wealth, there was a world repertoire out, out repertoire to do, and I would never get to do it. Um, I think my tastes are eclectic uh, and always have been. Um, you know, I, it's mystical almost, and I know people will think that's silly, why people choose plays. I I think in my case, I've always simply chosen plays that I like. Now, what do I like besides what I just said, which is variety? Um, I love plays, new plays of language. Uh, I love plays that are written by writers with a very idiosyncratic voice. Um, I love and have always been committed to new American musicals since the early Playwrights Horizons days when we were literally the first nonprofit theater, I think, in America to really focus on new 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 composers and lyricists. And I love old shows. Um, the only thing I would say that's different, and this is something I take into consideration when programming the Beaumont or the Mitzi, is that these are what we call thrust stages. 
The Beaumont is a large and lofty, epic thrust stage that was built for repertory company, and the Mitzi is simply a smaller version of that. Uh, the Beaumont is not a playground for talented kids. There's no point thinking that it is, because it can sink you. If you don't know as a director or as a designer what you're doing, it was famously thought of as an impossible stage that was unworkable yes, for many years. I think that's true, and I, I don't. I think it was a stage. I have come around to think, to thinking that it was a, a thrust stage that was ahead of its time. When the Beaumont was built, which was in the mid 1960s, there were very few thrust theaters in this country, and none in New York. Uh, Circle in the Square was around, but that was really a theater in four sides. Um, and a lot of designers and a lot of directors in those days simply didn't know how to work on a thrust stage. They had no experience. They'd only worked in proscenium houses because that's what in New York was the theater, which was Broadway. And the acoustics were difficult, and we've sort of worked on them and the sight lines. We've done a lot of work to the building, but I think, honestly, what I figured out when I got to Lincoln Center Theater, and I was really, thank God, unknowing of what I was getting myself in for. I was ill-equipped in some ways for the job, as I look back on it now. My experience of theater had only been narrow, small, proscenium houses where everyone looked in the same direction, and that's quite easy. A thrust theater where everyone is wrapped around the lip of the stage and no one is looking in the same direction is much, much harder. And when I program these spaces, especially the Beaumont. I have to think of what's right for the Beaumont. There are certain plays that I wish we could do that are simply are not going to come off well in a thrust stage. For example? Any kind of farce, I think, is difficult because a farce requires that the entire audience look at one piece of business together. If you miss it, you've missed it. That will never happen in the Beaumont. Uh, sort of intimate, one-set family dramas with realistic walls and everything. There's no way of... People, I think, in the past failed in the Beaumont because they tried to bring the Beaumont down to the level of the play they wanted to do. And what I figured out, and I mean, it's not such a brilliant idea, but is that we had to do plays in it that rose to the Beaumont's level. And by that, I don't mean large plays with thousands of actors and tons of scenery, because one-person shows, Spalding Gray or, or the play we did with Alan Alda or concerts, Barbara Cook or Patti Lapone, it's great. It's like a giant nightclub, the Beaumont, because the audience is wrapped around you. You can, you can respond. But I must say, there's certain plays that we've done on Broadway when the Beaumont has been occupied and we've been able to rent a Broadway house that we could never have done well. The, the heiress being one, Awake and Sing, which has two rooms parallel to each other. You just couldn't do it. Uh, a living room and a kitchen. Um, a delicate balance, I said. Uh, you know, well-made, old-fashioned plays. Uh, so that I do have to think of that. And I remember in the case of Cymbeline, I was sort of desperate, and I was going through some kind of wacko time in my life and I couldn't make up my mind what to do and what play to do and would we do a Moliere Mark was Lemos was the director or we got sort of hung up on two plays at the end one was a sort of drawing room comedy by um, by Somerset Maugham called Our Betters which is rarely done terribly funny and sort of satiric and one was Cymbeline and I 
I loved both of them for different reasons, but I finally thought, you know, I think Cymbeline plays into the strengths of the space and to some degree the strengths of the director as well. So that space thing is important for me. Beyond that, I just do the plays that I want to do, and I hope that we do them well, and I hope that others will like them. Now, you mentioned you occasionally rent a Broadway theater, basically off-campus, not at the Beaumont, not at the Newhouse. Is that for artistic reasons? Is that for other reasons why you decide to do shows outside of the Lincoln Center complex? It's usually because the Beaumont is. I mean, we shouldn't be doing plays outside of Lincoln Center unless the Beaumont is occupied, and there have been times when we've had a long run in the Beaumont, and since the Beaumont is virtually a Broadway theater in terms of pay scale and, and salaries, we go and we rent Broadway houses, which I love those times because it allows us to do certain kinds of plays we simply can't do there at Lincoln Center. But it doesn't happen that often. But you must know in advance that you're going to produce it elsewhere, not at, at, at the moment. No. I, my life is kind of cuckoo as an artistic director because I don't know often in advance if something is going to last longer than its scheduled run at the Beaumont or not. And now people say, well, why don't you just move a show to a Broadway theater? But it's in other theater companies can do that, but it's much more complicated for us because basically the Beaumont, you're not going to move to a smaller theater. You've got to move to a theater of the same size or bigger. And to convert the production from a thrust staging, I mean the way the actors move, and a thrust design would mean basically starting from scratch. And that's just wildly expensive. Just using a recent example, The Light in the Piazza, which was extended several times, would have been totally different than the proceeding yes. in the theater. And I, I actually think it wouldn't have been as good, mm -hmm. simply because the thrust of the Beaumont is kind of like a piazza. But that show did go out and tour, and presumably yes. it was playing proscenium houses. How did, yes. how did that work? It worked fine. I, I mean, my honest opinion is that it didn't work as well, but it worked fine. Hmm. Um, and it, when it had been done at the at the Goodman, uh, it was done in a proscenium before we did it. Uh, but I think it was better in the Beaumont. We'll talk about your time at Playwrights Horizons in a little bit, but I want to say that for our audience, very famously, there was a family of writers whose work was seen there, and we'll even talk about them specifically. Do you have the same opportunity at Lincoln Center? Do you have the freedom at Lincoln Center Theater to do an ongoing series of work with particular artists? I do have the freedom. What has changed for me being someone in my middle, middle age and having been at this for, God help me, a long time now, uh, is the the cast of characters has changed. Uh, the generation of writers that I, you know, everyone has this experience, that I grew up with, who were they? Christopher Durang, uh, Albert Inarato, Robbie Bates, uh, Wendy William Wasserstein, Finn, Pete Gurney. Wendy Wasserstein, Pete Gurney, Peter Parnell. You know, a lot has changed to these uh, men and women. I mean, some are no longer writing for the theater. Some seem to have tapped out for a while or maybe forever. Some are no longer alive. Um, and I've and the system of, of, of plays being placed in theaters has completely changed. When I began at Playwrights Horizons, which was in the late 1970s and became artistic director in 1981, there were certain theaters in New York and around the country 
that had specific identities, and that identity of style, of, of uh, what informed the kind of house style, was pretty much dictated by the writers. We were known in those days at Playwrights Horizons for a certain kind of urban comedy of sorts, kind of uh, sophisticated, satiric comedy. Uh, the Steppenwolf, in the early Steppenwolf days, now, yes, to some degree they were informed by their acting company, but it was kind of a bravura writing style. The Magic Theater in, in, in San Francisco had a different kind of style. I mean, there were a number of theaters where you could identify the theater by its playwrights. That's completely changed now because young writers who want a home are in such demand that they have homes everywhere. Part of it is agents who have taken over uh, the careers of these young writers at a much, much younger age than like Wendy or Chris Durang would have never had an agent after their first play or while they were still at Yale Drama School. It would have been simply unheard of. Today, that is the norm. So what you have is playwrights who, whose plays get sent to a number of theaters. It's kind of somewhat like Hollywood, I'm afraid. And whoever the strongest and fastest bidder is kind of gets the writer. Now, obviously, there are relationships that still go on between writer and theater company, but much less so, I find, than when I was at Playwrights Horizons in the 1980s um, and early 90s. I, I think that's the big difference for me. And though the Mitzi is very much a writer's theater, if the Beaumont, I always say the Beaumont is a director's theater because I, I don't think it's a venue suitable for new American plays, at least in their first incarnation. The Mitzi is very warm and embracing of, of new plays. Lincoln Center Theater is very public. It's, it's, it's not, it's not a, a developmental theater. It's not an experimental theater at the moment. We are building, this is not news, uh, a third theater, which we're going to start a program next year, renting space, and hopefully we'll build a third theater on the roof of the Beaumont or in the neighborhood if we can't do it on the roof for only new writers, only new directors, only new designers, uh, no subscribers, 10 to $15 a ticket, modest production. I mean, what I really want to do, I suppose, like Lear, is go back to my roots, and that's what we're going to do. Because I have to develop. I would like to see if we can develop under our own roof a new group of playwrights the way we did it at Playwrights Horizons then. I'm not sure that's possible anymore. And would this third theater, in essence, be, for lack of a better term, a black box theater yes. for experiment? Yes, I don't like the word, but that yeah, it will yeah, be. Yeah, that's why I say, for box. lack of a better term. Yeah, yeah. Small audience, intimate. Very much so, mm -hmm. yeah. And modest production values. But a production. I mean, these young writers today, the other thing that's changed, I'm just blabbering away here, is, <laughs> is these the writers of the generation today in their 20s and 30s, unlike the writers I mentioned earlier that we worked with at Playwrights Horizons 25 years ago, these writer, young writers today are not interested in what we used to think of as the developmental process. They don't want any more damn readings. They don't want one more workshop. They don't want to listen to 25 artistic directors give notes about the play, then rewrite the play, then not do the play. They want these plays produced. And they don't know how to work the way the writers of my generation at Playwrights Horizons worked, who knew the tools of how do I get something out of a reading? How do I actually 
work on the play and use a reading, not as an audition, but as something to help me with the words. How do I get something out of a workshop, which still is very valuable for musical writers? Uh, Wendy and Chris and all those people knew because those were the tools of our trade, and those were very new things in the 70s and 80s. That's pretty much gone now. Why do you think it's gone? Because you certainly, I've heard writers talk about feeling they get stuck in, you used Hollywood analogy, the, the theatrical equivalent of development hell. Is it the process has gone wrong or is done wrong in different places? Is it the writers are simply looking, have different goals for more, different, faster gratification? I think all of the above. I mean, I think the horror stories I've heard would lead me to believe that there's some pretty inept dramaturgs and probably artistic directors wandering around the country because there's so many theaters now. And what's good is that all of these theaters around the country are doing new plays. I mean, when I began at Playwrights Horizons, very few theaters outside of New York did new plays. They were opening up, they were starting, and they were starting with classics and well-known titles to get a subscription audience. Now, I think there's a kind of golden age of American playwriting going on. But I suspect, along with that golden age, it's attracted some sort of amateurs or people who weren't so skillful at working with writers, because not everybody can. I also suspect that the generation today and this is going to sound like such an old fogey, is that, you know, a lot of younger people today want what they want when they want it, and they want it now. And that's the world. There's no point shrieking about it and moaning about it because that's just the way life is for all of us. And it's not a question of not wanting to pay their dues because most young writers I know work very, very hard and care very deeply they sort of do want the upside of being a produced playwright, and they're not satisfied with... They want the spotlight and not the creative shadows. And who can blame them? But it's all quicker now, much, much quicker. And the danger of it is that these, these young writers get thrown up to a New York audience, and I might add the New York press, when they ain't ready to have it. And if they get battered once or twice... That could simply ruin them. I mean, the, the first three or four plays of Wendy Wasserstein, which Playwrights Horizons did before I even got there, when it was one room at the YMCA on West 55th Street, were never reviewed. The early productions of Playwrights Horizons that we did, and the only notable plays anyone might have heard of, would be Kennedy's Children or Albert Inarato's Gemini. We were hardly ever reviewed. We didn't have a press agent. In the early days, I mean, we had some sort of cockamamie volunteer. We should explain that Andre is turning to his publicist who's chuckling over this. But I don't mean him. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we, didn't, we didn't seek publicity in that way. We didn't t charge tickets. I mean, at, at Playwrights Horizons, at the beginning of the play, the founder, Bob Moss, and later me, uh, I, I, we'd get up and we'd sort of welcome the audience for every performance. And we only gave 12 performances, so it wasn't that odious a task. And we'd say some ridiculous thing about all for your delight, we are not here, you're the last element, the audience after the lights, blah, blah, blah. I mean, we meant it. And then at, we'd hold up this tacky, greasy, gray plastic shopping bag and say at the end of the play, we would be standing in the back and they could drop in whatever their contributions were. There were little envelopes in these 
programs, mimeographed, if you remember, mimeographed machines. And people would drop in, you know, dollar bills and, I must say, other things that were less attractive. And that's what it was like. That's the climate when we did Gemini that moved to Broadway. So, you know, all of that, that kind of, hey, guys, let's put on a show atmosphere, the good side of that and the bad side, and it was hard and dangerous work when we moved to West 42nd Street in those days. That's just gone. I mean, I think it may exist outside of Manhattan, uh, perhaps in small collectives that exist. But we all know more than we did 25 years ago because in those days the nonprofit theater was a very young, a, a, a young movement. It isn't a young movement anymore. Well, with this new third theater that you're about to open, um, is that, in a sense, a return to your roots at, at playwrights? In other words, going back to smaller experimental productions? Does that basically go back where you, what, what you were doing in the 80s, that same type yes, of Yes. I mean, w- within the umbrella of Lincoln Center Theater. Sure. Uh, uh, um, but I'm going to hire, you know, someone to, to, to be the director of it I, I, uh, under my hopefully benign supervision. Um, but, yeah, I think so. Uh, because I, I think that the, what you said earlier, the the one, the thing that I used to be known for, which was the development and production of new American plays, which I think is the reason the board of Lincoln Center Theater hired me, is the one thing I think I actually haven't done very well. Oddly, the thing that I was ill-equipped to do, which was to figure out the rather difficult recalcitrant Vivian Beaumont Theater thousand-seat thrust stage space is the thing I think I've done triumphantly, having had no experience in that kind of producing at all. But I knew when I got to Lincoln Center Theater, the one thing I did know, and I didn't know a whole lot else, was that that was the nut to crack. If I couldn't, and and even my predecessor, Gregory, hadn't quite cracked it. And uh, I felt that the directors and the designers... And the projects that we did in it, that was crucial. That would make or break us. Um, And I think that in some ways, in terms of new work, we've been not so adventurous and not so interesting, actually. Well, you use the term benign supervision, and that uh, kind of brings to mind something that Susan Stroman said on this program a couple of years ago about when she was developing and directing Contact for Lincoln Center Theater, how you basically came in at the very beginning and then walked away for about six weeks and let her just play around in the basement and develop a show and gave her the artistic freedom to develop the show the way she saw it. I've read other uh, people say kind of the same thing about you, that you basically let people do as they wish. Is that is that the Andre Bishop-style benign supervision? Well, I let them do as they wish within reason. Uh-huh. <laughs> or I let them think they're doing what they wish. Uh-huh. No, I think that, you know, if you hire artists, and I don't mean hire like money, I mean if you engage their interest and their hearts and minds and souls to work on a play, be it new or old. If you, you have to trust them. You have to go on the assumption, number one, that they know what they're doing with this piece or that they will find their way through to knowing what they're doing with this piece, especially if it's something new. You also have to make sure in the beginning that you as a producer and they, by that I mean the director, the writer, the designers, and eventually the actors, and hopefully eventually the audience, are on the same track. That's the most important thing. And these shows, whether they're good or bad, they get into trouble, and you can always trace it when 
the director thinks the show should be red and the writer thinks the show should be green and the actors are acting yellow and the designers are designing, well, you get my, what I'm saying. That's very key to me, that when we go into rehearsal after a certain amount of pre-production time, and it can be a long time or a short time, we are all after the same result. How we get to that result, in my opinion, is up to the director and the designers. I go away for a while because, number one, I absolutely, when I was an actor, I loathed it when the producers would come in and, like, check out a rehearsal and sit there, you know. And also, it bores me. I'm not interested in sitting around while they go over the same scene a thousand times. I have more things to do. And I feel my usefulness, and that's when I'm, I hope still benign, but I hope useful, is to come in and be a pair of fresh eyes. Because at the point when you get on stage and you have had some grisly tech, which it always is, and you somehow lurch into the first preview, either well-prepared or ill-prepared, the director or the author needs a collaborator standing, sitting with them, who has not been there a thousand times, who is seeing it all fresh. And I, I trust that now more than I ever did when I was young. I used to sit around texts and dress rehearsals just to be sort of supportive to the actors. Now I go to the theater and talk to the actors, and I don't watch it. I want to go to the dress rehearsal when it's all done and when I can see it as close to a member of the audience seeing it fresh as I can be, being the one who picked the play. And I, I know of these producers who just hover all the time, and I just despise that. I think it's an exercise in ego and nothing else. Uh, because at that point, you have nothing to offer. If they come to me and say, look, will you come in and see this scene? I'm in trouble. Or this actor is, will you go talk to this actor? Or will you, I'm there in two seconds. And then I'm there a lot in previews. That's the fun time is the previews, because that's when we really work. I mean, I have seen in previews something good become fantastic. I've seen something bad become better. I've never seen something bad become worse. But the other thing I've seen is that, which I didn't used to know in my developing day, developmental days, I, I used to think you could make something good out of anything if you worked hard enough. And I now realize that isn't true. I have a very good sense, pretty much from the first preview, if the show is going to fulfill its promise or not. I, I can tell. I, I think one can tell, not just me. And I never used to think that. But boy, I have seen the difference between something working and something being fantastic. I know I always tell people, please don't come to early previews. Please, because it will get so much better. Any examples of a show that surprised you, that became much more fantastic than any of your wildest dreams that you ever really anticipated? I think some shows became wonderful by sheer hard work, uh, notably, well, what, The Light in the Piazza, which had gone through a number of workshops and productions before we inherited it, though we had been sort of part of it, but not really that closely. We worked demonically during the three weeks of previews, and it was a show that was quite lovely and connected to some of its audience in the beginning. But... I can't say totally was working, and we rearranged and fussed and fumed and restaged and relit. It was way too dark in the beginning. The sound, all of that, we tinkered 
creatively and and did some massive things we did we put we reversed the whole revelation of why the girl was the way she was we put it into the first act whereas it had been in the second act and that was a huge difference that was one example of a show that i thought really became within its particular kind of musical really fulfilled itself in those three and a half weeks but there have been many others many others we're more than halfway through our time with you and we've talked back and forth between playwrights horizons and lincoln center theater i want to ask how did you come to doing this work? What was your background, and what led up to your time at Playwrights Horizons? I had no background in in the theater in the sense that I, I, I you know, I loved the theater. I was born in Manhattan. I went to the theater at age five. I, you know, uh, like most of us in the arts, I was totally miserable and unhappy as a child and escaped through fantasy, all of that. And I wanted to be an actor like everyone else because that's what you want to be when you're young. You don't say, oh, I'm eight years old and I want to be an artistic director. <laughs> there weren't any when I was eight years old. Um, and I I acted, always acted in school, and I was obsessed by the theater, obsessed. And I loved it. I loved the New York theater, and, and I had no family connections to it at all. And, and I went to, you know, I went to school and I went to Harvard and acted a lot there, though they had no drama department. And I came to New York wanting to be an actor and enrolled in the neighborhood playhouse, but I just never could get myself to go there for more than a few days because I thought it was so boring. I was just not ready for it. And I kind of did – I worked at the Shakespeare Festival in the Delacorte box office, and I worked for a record producer named Ben Bagley for a while, and I tutored kids in French, and I – studied acting with two wonderful teachers, Fred Caraman and then his the person who then took over his classes, uh, Wynne Hanman, who was a great, great mentor of mine, the American Place Theater director, and he was a profound influence on me, Wynne. He was a brilliant acting teacher, but what he really did was that he talked about writers and writing, and he would often give us scenes to do from new plays that he was doing or had done. And I learned more about writing from him than I think I learned about acting. I mean, he was a phenomenally gifted, extraordinary man. And I I was 26 or 27, and I was sort of lost. I knew I wanted to be in the theater, but I had no confidence in myself as an actor. I was shy, and that's not good. <laughs> I... We talked earlier about shadows and spotlight. I had enormous trouble as a young person and frankly today getting from the shadows to the spotlight I was quite happy all alone in my little apartment and I was very happy once I got on stage and acted which I did do but anything in between was a torture for me uh, I had a friend who's now dead named Leland Moss who had been directing plays at this fledgling little theater called Playwrights Horizons which was at this YMCA in the West 50s and he said why don't you go there and see what it's like, maybe. So I went there, and this other mentor of mine, Bob Moss, who was the founder of Playwrights Horizons, you know, it was it was the kind of fan every flame, that's what we were doing then. And we did, I don't know, 25 plays in nine months, and uh, two spaces, and anyone who had any talent, we put on their play. And a lot of it was just ghastly. But, of course, some of it was interesting. And some of those early writers, including Wendy, were promising. And some of those early directors, such as my friend Leland or Garland Wright, who was 
the head of the Guthrie many years later. Um, and I kind of liked it there. And we moved to 42nd Street, and it was, you know, the street was filled with seamy sex parlors and sort of retired prostitutes and uh, desperate Navy men. And uh, it was dangerous, but not that dangerous. And it was scuzzy, but not that scuzzy. And we moved in, and we repainted, and we started putting on these plays. And audiences came. And I remember I had been cast in a tour of a moderately successful play by Alan Bennett called, oh dear, um, called something or other. Uh, And I was playing the sorts of roles I always played, which was a sensitive, neurotic son. And it had been a Broadway semi-success, and uh, it was going on a limited but national tour. And I was cast as the neurotic son. And I had been working at Playwrights Horizons for a number of months as a volunteer, answering the phone, reading plays, cleaning the bathrooms, you know, taking taking the donations at the end, and meeting writers. That was the key thing, I guess. And I thought, I can go out on tour now, and I know that all the months I've spent at Playwrights Horizons will vanish if I go away and leave this place that I had, whose ideals of new American writers. All of this was very new then. It it isn't now, but it was in 1976. I thought, I don't want to leave this place because I believe in what it's doing and I can never come back here with the same head of steam that I was beginning to build up. So I turned the tour down. I decided to stop acting and I never thought about it again. And ironically, the tour folded about three weeks later. Um... So I think my interest, you know, I didn't know about nonprofit theater. There was no nonprofit theater in New York. There was La Mama and American Place and Chelsea Theater Center. That's about it. Uh, I was lucky, and my generation of artists and administrators, such as myself, were lucky because our lives were at the same stage that this fledgling nonprofit theater movement was at. So we grew because it was a very free arena where anyone could come and work because that's the way it was then. We grew at the same pace that this theater movement grew. There was room for all of us then. And the movement grew, and the theaters that we were working at grew bigger and became more mainstream. And we grew. So I I learned, to answer your question, everything on the job. I never went to drama school. Uh... I learned it all by doing it. Again, it's very hard to do that today. So my luck and those of many of my colleagues, Lynn Meadow and and, 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 and my friends who are still around in the nonprofit New York Theater, that was a a once-in-a-lifetime experience for us. We were the right people at the right time. To come all the way now back to Lincoln Center, you've talked about the place that Playwrights Horizons had, very defined mission of works by new American writers. And you've also spoken about where the not-for-profit was. And of course, now we look at the number of not-for-profit theaters in New York, large and small, and it's certainly grown enormously. Do you think there is a particular place that Lincoln Center Theater occupies in the constellation of New York theaters? Yes. I think that, well... It isn't limited the way Playwrights Horizons is and should be. I mean, I'm not, I don't mean limited in a bad way. I mean, in a good way. 
Playwrights Horizons and certain other theaters like that have very specific missions. And the wonderful thing about Playwrights Horizons is that that theater and the artistic director and the board of directors and the staff have stuck to the mission of Playwrights Horizons. They have never varied from it since before I got there. I think Lincoln Center Theater is unique because of the shape and size of its theaters and because we are at Lincoln Center, which is a great blessing and a great curse. The blessing is it's a wonderful arts complex that is extremely vibrant and full of people going to all sorts of things all the time and new efforts to open it up, to democratize it more, to rebuild the crumbling buildings. All of that is fantastic. So there's a certain... I don't know what the word is, eminence that you get by being there, just by being there. On the other hand, you are often thought of as being perhaps too eminent, too much marble. I mean, the theater, unlike our friends at the opera or the ballet or the symphony that surround us, the theater, the nonprofit theater in New York, is still, despite its mainstream activities, kind of scrappy. Because we have the Broadway theater next to us working, not with us, but th there is a whole other theater movement going on in New York. There isn't like a commercial symphony and a nonprofit symphony or a money-making opera house and a nonprofit opera house. So I think at Lincoln Center, we're sort of this odd creature up there in some ways. And I, I think often people think we're more mainstream than we are. I think what we do, I think well, is is we are able to do a huge variety of work. To go back to something you said earlier, we have the capabilities, the resources, and an unbelievable staff to do old shows and new shows and small plays and old musicals. We have an orchestra pit. We we, and I think we do these. Some of these plays we have done as well as anyone in this country can do them. That isn't as specific as saying we develop new American writers by any means, because what you said earlier, well, you're doing a play by uh, Paul Rudnick and you're doing Cymbeline and you're doing a new Aaron's and Flaherty show and you're doing a Tom Stoppard and also we're doing a revival, the first New York revival in a theater of South Pacific. Well, you'd think, what kind of maniac chose this sort of season? But it, it isn't. It's what Lincoln Center Theater can do that I dare say most other theater companies can't or don't want to. And I would expect also with the name Lincoln Center and with the association with the opera, the Philharmonic, uh, the ballet, that there's a certain expectation on the part of audiences that this must be good certain uh, expectation of performance, certainly after the Coast of Utopia, certainly after Light in the Piazza. Audiences coming in, in expect to see wonderful work done on stage. So there must be a, a tremendous pressure then to deliver, I would expect. Well, I think there always is. I mean, I, 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 I think whether you're at Lincoln Center or some cave in a sewer and you're putting on a play, the audience has every reason to expect the best. Except I, they, they may not expect in quite the same way in a no. downtown off-Broadway house as your no. off-Broadway no, house. No, people are less forgiving at Lincoln Center, let's just say, if we do something that stinks, you know. And we have sometimes, and uh, it's it's easier to do something stinky in a little tiny space, hole-in-the-wall theater, than it is, you know, at Lincoln Center. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's quite humbling when you fail on a grand scale. It's certainly much more visible. Yes. For all of the success you've had 
both at Lincoln Center Theater and at Playwrights Horizons, I have always had the sense that you, Andre Bishop, the person, are less forward and present than some other artistic directors and producers at, at in terms of a public persona for the theater. And indeed, I had found one quote in an article in the New York Times that referred to your self-abnegating personality. What public role do you feel you play, can play, or shouldn't play for the theater? Well, that's sort of an interesting question. Um, I, I've always been more comfortable. I, 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 I think, you know, you go through all sorts of different reasons as to why you behave the way you do, and of course, you change. The person who said whatever you just said in some interview or what he wrote, which was 15 or 16 or 17 years ago, I, I think I'm I'm much more confident now than I was then. I've done more. I mean, it would be I would be a total hopeless if I wasn't a little more sure of myself. I think that I have always pri- I've always wanted to be a private person. I I I I know enough about the world and la publicité is one of our press agents at Playwrights Horizons used to say is that if they if you're out there, you're out there for the good, but you're also out there for the bad. And I'm, I, when I was at Playwrights Horizons, I was very much in the limited world of the off-Broadway theater public eye. I was kind of the golden boy then. It was like for a couple of years, Playwrights Horizons could do no wrong. And so we did wrong, but for a while we didn't. At least that's what people thought. And uh, I think part of it is I... I don't like uh, I I like going home and I now have a partner and a daughter. I don't like parties. I don't like groups of people. I am shy and I still am and I think that's part of it and I I don't I'm and at the same time I think what I've worked out through years of therapy and 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 the putting on of plays is that I have great inner confidence and strength in myself, and I don't see that as being prideful or self-deluding. I see that as being real. And I don't need, perhaps, as much affirmation from the public, or I occasionally get furious and say, you know, I think I'm the unsung hero, and why are they always writing about so-and-so? What about me? I've done this, I've done that, no one remembers, blah, blah, blah. But, and I have those moods, but they pass pretty quickly. Because I, and I also think the role of an artistic director or producer who does not direct, I would say, that's also something. I don't direct. I think it is dignified and appropriate to remain in the background. It's about the artists. People always say that, but I have seen producers push actors out of the way to get up on the stage when they were getting awards. I think, and I, I get it a lot from myself. I do get upset when we get something awful written about us in the papers, or sometimes I go into those terrifying to someone like me chat rooms and I read something insane that somebody has written about me that they don't even know me. Uh, I once read something a few months ago we announced we were doing Cymbeline and, and someone on a chat room said, well, why are they doing Cymbeline? We've all seen it a thousand times. Well, that simply isn't true. But 
but then someone else answered, I'm sure they're doing Cymbeline because Andre Bishop doesn't want to pay the author any royalties. And I read this thing, and I almost wanted to go online myself, except I can't, because I thought, are you insane? Do you think I'm that shallow and pathetic? And this is Lincoln Center Theater, a theater, and I might add, the only one in America who does not take subsidiary rights from authors and who just came off doing The Coast of Utopia, which was quite a little nest egg for the author. Do you think that's why I picked Cymbeline, one of the most difficult plays in the Shakespearean canon, to do? So occasionally, as you can hear in my voice, I get upset by that. But the the appreciation I get is from myself, and I'm also really hard on myself, and frankly from the artists who work with me. I, I think that's where I get my pleasure because I think, I, I think, I mean, I don't know, that most directors and, and writers tend to like me and respect me. So I get a lot back from them. We've mentioned South Pacific several times without going into much detail. It starts previews in March of next year, opens in April. Kelly O'Hara will be playing Nellie Forbes. She'll be directed by Bartlett Sher, both of whom were associated with The Light in the Piazza on your stage at uh, the Vivian Beaumont. Tell us a little bit more about what we can expect and, and why South Pacific now. Well, it's a great show. I mean, that's, that's such a fatuous thing to say, but it's a great show that everybody thinks they've seen, but I don't believe they, in fact, have, at least seen done properly. Um... I, it's my favorite musical. Talk about reasons for doing something. My favorite musical, that's why we're doing it. But I, I've wanted to do it for years, and we never, ever were able to get the rights from Rodgers and Hammerstein organization. Either they wanted a big commercial production, or they wanted to keep it back because there were other r shows happening, or it's a difficult show. That's one reason, a very good reason why it hasn't been revived, if you can believe it, uh, since the original production. I mean, City Opera's done it, Carnegie Hall, in the old days, the city center, but it's, it's, and it's been on tour endlessly, but it's a very hard show to cast. Uh, it's a very hard show to find the proper balance of seriousness and comedy. It's a serious show about war and about racism and all this stuff, but it's still a musical comedy. Uh, anyway, finally, because of Light in the Piazza, they called me after I'd given up and said, does Lincoln Center Theater still have an interest in South Pacific? And at first I said, oh, God, no. I would guide law. You know, when you fall out of love, it's kind of, that's it. But about one second later, I said, yes, yes, yes. But I want to do it with the forces that I think are correct. And by that, I mean forces who will direct it and act it, it and design it and conduct it as a real musical play, which is what it is. It isn't a lot of famous romantic songs and this boring old book. If you see these, hear these book scenes as we have been in auditions, directed by a director who, yes, directs musicals and, and opera now, but also mainly directs plays and understands subtext, as Joshua Logan, the original director, did, who had been to Russia and studied with Stanislavski, you realize that the the, the scenes themselves are beautifully crafted and extremely rich and emotional and, and layered. Yes, the war then, the war now is something. Yes, we live in a country where prejudice and racism has not gone away. And one other thing that I think is different from the way the show was received in 1949, which is it begins and ends. I mean, it's it's really about people from all these different cultures who come together 
in this little island in the middle of nowhere and try to engage with each other or not. And the play, the show opens oddly and closes with a song sung in a foreign language, which is sort of metaphorically interesting. And then you have in the beginning of the play a kind of loose family of this French planter and this black butler and these two half-black, half-Polynesian, half-French children and this exotic world. And then the end of the play, the adventure that we and the characters take to get to the end, you end with this family scene of these two half-Polynesian, half-French kids, the the, the black butler, the Frenchman, and the American nurse, all as the family unit. And, of course, the sort of nuclear family that we all have today, I speaking as a, as a, as a man, a gay man, with a daughter. People, men and women, men and men, women and women, adopting kids from all over the world now. We have redefined the American family to some degree. I don't mean everywhere, believe me. I know not everywhere, but... and. I, in many places, and not just New York City. And ultimately, that's where South Pacific begins and ends, with this vision, and at the end, it's a utopian vision, but I can say it's a real vision for me, of this family of disparate people who love each other deeply. Well, what is more meaningful than that? And speaking of beginnings and endings, we've come kind of full circle with me able to say that on the same stage where Cymbeline is currently playing at the Vivian Beaumont, we'll look forward to next March and April when uh, we can see South Pacific at the Vivian Beaumont, Lincoln Center Theater, and Andre, Andre Bishop, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you. Thanks, Andre. For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theater Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.